The Truth About Money, part four, the title of the message, The More Not the Merrier. <laughs> I don't know. Every once in a while, I get a message title that I'm really excited about, and I'm excited about this one. The More Not the Merrier. Why? Because the saying is often the more the merrier, but I don't know if I'm talking to anybody who's ever gotten more and it didn't make you happy. Anybody like that? You think you're going to get that job, you're going to be happier. You get the job and you're not happier. You think you're going to get that income, you're going to be happier and you're not happy. You think you're going to move to another location and all your problems are going to go away. And it's not true. There's an old saying. It's a wise proverb. Wherever you go, there you are. Amen. And that's how we learn the hard way that just changing the outside of our lives doesn't actually affect much of the inside of our lives. And I'm doing a message series on money, and I'm so excited about this particular message because here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm so excited. I am about to save you all a lot of money. How does that sound? Does that, does that sound good? Are you excited about that? Who likes saving money? Okay, I, I like saving money. I am a big saver, and I talked about this last week when we were together, that you give 10% to God, that, that's his, the tithe belongs to him, then you save 10% and you put that aside and then you tell the government, I'm paying you less. That's what we talked about last week. And this week, we're going to carry this a little bit further because I think that it's, when it comes to spending money, it's never about... Um, purchasing the thing or what we see on the outside. It's always about what's going on on the inside. Today I'm going to save you money because I'm going to preach a whole message on one word. And the word is this, contentment. Ooh, that's a good word. Somebody say contentment on the count of three at all locations. One, two, three. <laughs> contentment. Somebody turn to your neighbor and just say, it's time to be content. Just turn to your neighbor. Go ahead. At all locations. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5 says, keep your life free from the what? From the love of money and be, what's the word? Content. Hey, if you got your notes out, circle content because this is a big theme for today. Be content with what you have. Be content with what you have. Don't be comparing what you have with what other people have. Scripture says, this is how you keep yourself free from the love of money. You are content with what you have. And this is another reason why. For God has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I want to talk to you about contentment because we've got a serious problem with covetousness in our country right now. It's not like it's a new problem. It's been a problem since sin entered the world. The, two, the first two people, Adam and Eve, had two sons, Cain and Abel. And the scripture says that God looked with favor on Abel, but he didn't look with favor on Cain. I talked a few weeks ago about why that was different. Cain brought his offerings after everything was taken care of for himself. Abel brought the first of his firstborn flocks to God. He put God first. And because Cain coveted the appreciation that Abel got from God, Cain killed his brother. Covetousness is nothing new. It's in the Ten Commandments. It's the last of the ten. And great theologians before me, greater than me, have said this, that the first commandment and the last commandment of the ten correspond to each other. You shall have no other gods before me. That's first. Go through eight other commandments. Get to the last one, and this is the last one. And you shall not covet your neighbor's house, wife, property, oxen, camel, whatever. So here's how those two go together. When you've got God in your life and he is all that you know and all that you love, most of all, then there's no need to covet what others have because your greatest possession in life is God. Amen. So well, let's talk about this, contentment versus covetousness. Now, this is not in our notes elsewhere, but I want to have you write this down in your notes somewhere on the back side. Here's what contentment is. Contentment is staying the same on the inside, no matter what's happening on the outside. That's what contentment is. It's letting your heart be at rest, no matter what is stressing you or blessing you. I'm at rest, no matter the stress, no matter the bless. Amen. I like to rhyme when I preach. I don't know if you notice that. I have, a, I have a, a penchant for rapping in my private time. 
But contentment is to be at rest inside so that what's on the outside. Here's why that matters. Because it is Christmas shopping season. It is Christmas shopping season. And you're going to be tempted. You're going to be uh, allured by the lights and the signs and the images and the things out there that you could get so that you feel better in here. But contentment says to yourself, contentment says, listen, stay the same on the inside and don't focus on what's on the outside of your life. And the opposite is covetousness. Write this down, no space in our other locations, but write this down. Covetousness is letting the outside affect and change what's on the inside. It's the exact opposite. So, so here's why you want contentment. Because contentment is not subject to the things I cannot control. And do you know what the things are that you cannot control in life? Do you know what the things are that you cannot control in life? Okay, everybody do this at all of our locations. Take your index finger. Take your index finger. Hold it out like this at all locations. And then just point to yourself. Okay, and here's what I want you to do. Everything but this is what you can't control. (laughs) You can control nothing outside of you. Amen? You can't control what your neighbor does. You can't control what the government or the country does. You can't control what your family does. You can't control what your job does, what your boss does, what your coworkers do. But guess who you can control? You. You can control you. And I believe that that's why God gives us the Holy Spirit, so that we can have the power to control us. One of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self, what? Control. God gives us the Holy Spirit to have the power to control what's going on in here, because what's going on outside of here is crazy. Lights, signs, advertisements, comparison, shopping season. My kids need this to be happy. My wife wants that or I'm going to fail. My, my, my parents need to know this or have that or I'm going to be a bad child. No, my friend, that is letting the outside get on the inside. And contentment is getting the power from God to let what's inside stay the same no matter what's on the outside. Can I get a good amen right there? And now look at what it says here in 1 Timothy. I love this passage. 1 Timothy says, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be what? Content. If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Let me talk about that word contentment. A little word study here. In the Greek, the word contentment is a two-part word. Artos, archeo. Artos, archeo. And the two words put together, artos, self, and archeo means to raise a barrier around. Here's what contentment is. It's actually a very cool idea. Contentment is to raise a barrier around yourself. That's what contentment is. And some of you have to understand, this is again why the Holy Spirit is necessary. Because left to ourselves, the flesh is going to go crazy. It's always going to go wild and, and, and pursue inordinate desires. But when the Holy Spirit comes into us, it gives us a self-control, a sense, of, a sense of ease and rest, no matter what's on the outside. And, and the Holy Spirit gives us a spirit of contentment so that we raise up a barrier around ourselves. Because that message from the, from the world, that message that is waiting for you outside every door, is you'll never be happy until. You'll never be happy until. Um, big news a couple of weeks ago. I'm not even sure where it is right now, but... Wasn't the, the jackpot, the Powerball thing, wasn't it up to almost, what, $2 billion? $2 billion? Has anybody won the Powerball yet? Did they win it? No? What is it at? Two, it must be like $2.3 billion. I don't know where it's at. But this is insane, right? And, and a couple of weeks ago, down here in our Apollo Beach location, we were having men's night. And the question went around to the men, what would you do if you won the lottery? And I really appreciate the spiritualization of the answers from the men at Waters Church of Palo Beach. Oh, they were passing the Sunday school test. I'm telling you. Flying color. Every single one of them said, well, I'd first give 10% to the church. And I think they only said that because I was sitting there with them. Yes, yes, yes. Good for you. Yes. Bonus points in heaven. It finally came right. They were all like, well, I had to start a foundation and I'd give my, you know, this to that person. I'd do that. I'd go, maybe I'd do a little bit of traveling with the wife. Finally came around to me. And I said, I'll tell you what I'd do. I'm going to be the only honest person in this room. 
I said, I'd probably go crazy, buy myself a yacht that costs too much to maintain, end up on the Mediterranean, quit this job tomorrow, get divorced, and be a total wreck for the rest of my life. I don't know if they expected me to say that, but I, the point is, is that I, I don't know if that's true or not. It might be true. But the point is, I'm just trying to say, look, we have no idea what we will be like if we get that kind of money. Because money does not solve problems. Many times more money creates problems. Want some evidence from that? I have a couple of people that I want to talk to you about. They are lottery winners of the past. And all you got to do, by the way, after this service, not now, please don't do it now. After the service, go home, Google lottery winners stories. Just Google that. You'll be shocked at how many names come up of people that their lives were wrecked by winning a lottery. Jack Whitaker, West Virginia, won the U.S. Powerball Christmas 2002. How did it go for him? Within eight months, he was robbed $500,000 at a strip club. A month later, his granddaughter died of an overdose from an allowance that he gave her with which she used to buy drugs. A short time after that, his daughter also died of a drug overdose with the money that he gave her. When asked about how he was doing one year into his millions, he told a reporter, I wish I tore that ticket up. The most ironic part of that story for Jack Whitaker is before he won the lottery, he owned a $27 million construction business. He died last year. William Post won $16.2 million in the Pennsylvania lottery in 1988, but he was $1 million in debt within one year. 16 million went one, 1 million in debt in one year. His brother was arrested for hiring a hitman to kill him and take his money. Post said, I wish it never happened. It was a total nightmare. I was much happier when I was broke. He lived on $450 a month and food stamps until his death in 2006. Crazy. In 2004, Sharon Tirabasi, a single mother, had been on welfare. She cashed a check from the Ontario Lottery Gaming Corp for $10 million. She spent all of her winnings on a big house, fancy cars, designer clothes, lavish parties, exotic trips, handouts to family, loans to friends. And in less than a decade, she was right back to where she was started, riding the bus, working part-time, and living in a rented house. In 2006, a Florida man... <laughs> Florida man, love that phrase. Uh, Abraham Shakespeare, 42, won $72 million. $72 million. He was killed three years later by D.D. D. Moore, a woman who had targeted him for the money. D.D. D. managed to take almost $2 million by the time she orchestrated her killing. She and her boyfriend buried him underneath a concrete slab in a wooded area. He was missing for several months before she finally admitted where the body was. Come on, how many know only in Florida that stuff happens right there? That's a Florida story if everybody heard it. Amen. Uh, sorry, Florida. <laughs> That's true. Evelyn Bayshore. Now, this is a story that shocked me. Evelyn Bayshore won $3.9 million in the lottery in uh, 2000 and, oh, sorry, 1985. And five months later, she won it again for $1.4 almost $5 million in five months. And when she was interviewed years later, she said, everybody just wanted the money. Winning the lottery isn't all it's cracked up to be. I won the American dream, but I lost my life as well. It was very hard to fall that way. It's called rock bottom. How many stories do we need to hear like that? Until we finally internalize the fact that maybe the idea that we are sold a hundred times a day through advertisements and comparing, comparing ourselves to others is a lie that if we have that, we will be happy. No, here's what we need. Contentment. Do you want to win the spiritual lottery? <laughs> Here it is. The spiritual winning lottery ticket is contentment. If we have food and clothing, Paul says, we will be content with that. He says in verse 10 of that same chapter, for for the love of money is the root of many kinds of evil. By the way, just want you to notice, it's the love of money, not money itself. Everybody likes to say in church, well, money's evil. No, no, money's not evil. Money's a tool. You can build a hospital with money. You can also build a casino with money. It's just a matter of what you're putting the money into. It's the love of money. 
That is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through the craving for money that some have what? Look at it. What? What have they done? Wandered from the faith. In other words, money will come in to a Christian's life and lead that Christian away from Christ. They'll, they'll smell the, the idea of more money and they'll just wander into lawlessness and recklessness. And then they will pierce themselves. Come on, this is true. They'll pierce themselves with many pangs. Jeremiah Burroughs, a Puritan preacher, said it like this. Contentment works not by adding to our circumstances, but by subtracting from our desires. In other words, it's not just about saying, I need this and then I'll be happy. No, 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 that's not going to bring you contentment. Here's what's going to bring you contentment. Telling yourself, I don't need that to be happy. In other words, not letting what's on the outside affect what's on the inside. Being the same no matter what's happening around you. And so... How do we get contentment? Because I love Paul's mindset. He says, look, if I got food and clothing, I'm content. I don't know about you, but I, I want that in my life. I want a sense of, I'm, not, I'm, I'm good. God is good. I'm blessed. All is well. Jesus is Lord. I'm on my way to heaven. This life is not the end. And I'm, I'm at peace no matter what's on the outside of my life. Anybody with me? I want that kind of life. So how do we get it? Well, I'm going to read your passage from Philippians chapter 4. Stay seated for the reading of God's word. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. And there's a verse in here that's very familiar to many of us. But here's Peter, Paul. He's, he's writing to the Philippian church. He's closing out his letter. This is the last chapter of this book. He's writing some, some personal notes to the church that blessed his life. This little Philippian church in ancient Philippi in ancient Greece. And here's what he says in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Now at length that you have, now that, no, I'm sorry. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. For you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity to show it. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be, what's the word if you got your Bible open? Content. I've learned in whatever situation to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then this phrase is very, very familiar to everybody. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Notice the context in which he says those words. Now we're not done. It says this in verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me. When he says no church entered into partnership, he's talking about no church gave money to support the ministry to me. He says only you guys, only you and Philippi gave me money for my ministry. He says, even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and, again, once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God, and this is another very familiar phrase in Philippians, and my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. And the last word everybody said together, amen. amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to unfold your word, to unpack it, to hear your voice, to be changed through the Holy Spirit. Lead and guide my words and open our ears and our hearts to hear your voice and help us to see Jesus. Him and him only, in his mighty name we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. How do we get contentment in our lives? There is an old story I heard of a woman who was sitting in her office talking to another woman next to her. And the boss was walking by and they didn't see him. And she said, you know, all I really need is another $1,000. If I had $1,000 right now in my hand, I'd be totally content. The boss ears picked up on this conversation, walked into the office and he said, you know, I've got a lot of money. And I've never been content. But to hear you say that brings joy to my heart. Here's what I'm going to do. I've never met a totally contented person. I'm going to write you a check for $1,000 so that you can have what I can't find myself. And immediately he pulled out his checkbook, wrote a $1,000 check, and handed it to the woman. 
And he walked away, and he could hear them talking as he walked away in the background. And the woman said under her breath, man, I wish I had said (laughs) $2,000. Isn't that the case? No matter what we get. No matter what we get. We're always thinking about more. That's the sinful nature. That's the sin carnal nature. Paul says, I've solved this problem. I've gotten to a place from his words in Philippians chapter 4. I've gotten to a place where I can finally at ease no matter what. Oh, I want this. I don't know about anybody else, but I want this. Like, you know what you got to understand about preachers is sometimes they're preaching to themselves. So if you feel convicted today, just know that this is what the Lord has been doing in my heart all week as I prepared this message. And I'm telling you, I went back for thirds at Thanksgiving, so I seriously need this message. I got a contentment problem. Here's how we do it. Point number one, if you're taking notes, write this down. If you're not taking notes, write this down. I must learn to be content. I must learn. The first thing you got to understand is contentment is a learned experience. Um, That automatically implies, and listen to this, no one is born content. No one is born content. And everybody who had a kid in life at some point said, amen. You can say amen right there. Yeah, that's right. No one's born content. What's every child's favorite four-letter word? M-I-N-E. Mine. And parents in the house, all locations, raise your hand if you ever had to teach your child that word. No one here. (laughs) It comes standard. Mine. Mine, you know what I'm talking about. Mine. I, I remember one time I was I was bringing one of my sons. I won't tell the name anymore because I don't want to embarrass him. But I was bringing one of my sons out to McDonald's and I got them a happy meal with chocolate milk and I got myself some fries and a burger. And I was driving in the car and I didn't get a drink for myself because I was trying to save money without the drink. You know what I'm talking about. That's what I do. Anyway, uh, so I was eating my fries and burger and they were in the back and they were eating their fries and chicken nuggets and, and they had chocolate milk left over. And I said, hey, can you give me some chocolate milk? And I reached my hand behind. And they said, no. And I said, what do you mean no? And they said, it's mine. And I'm like thinking to myself, I could buy you a gallon of chocolate milk and dump it all over you. And to be honest with you, I was tempted in that moment to do just that. The child did not realize that I had paid for the chocolate milk. I could provide more chocolate milk than you could ever need. I was the master of chocolate milk. I own the chocolate milk on a thousand hills. Amen, somebody. My child forgot that I was the provider, that I could take care of them, that I had all that they needed. And you know what? As I thought about that sentence in my head, the Lord challenged my heart and said, Tim, that's exactly how you respond to me sometimes. Mine. When I'm the one who gave it to you. Oh, I'm preaching now because you're quiet. I tell God all the time, well, God, I want this. Oh, yeah, yeah, I can give that to you. But I want you to grow and learn to be content. Amen, somebody. See, God doesn't care about what you've got. He cares about who you're becoming. He cares about the character that's being formed inside of you. Paul says in verse 11, I have learned what? I have learned what? Okay, you know why this passage just blows me away? Because this is Paul the Apostle. This guy guy wrote a third of the New Testament. This guy knows stuff. What I'm trying to say, he knows stuff. God does not publish your books in the Bible if you don't know a few things. He was published by God the Holy Spirit. And yet still, even he has to say, I had to go through this process. I had to learn how to be content where I am with what I got. So here's the good news for everybody. Um, If you're not currently content like me, like me, okay, you can get there because Paul got there and you can get there. So it's not a lost cause. It's like swimming. Some people say, oh, I I don't want to go in the water. I can't swim. But you could learn to swim. So don't beat yourself up over the fact that you can't swim. Learn to swim. Don't beat yourself up with the fact that you struggle with contentment. Learn contentment, and God will make it happen in your life. Point number two, here's how we learn contentment. I learn contentment through the experiences God allows. 
Okay, here's the deal. Here's how you learn contentment. Are you ready for it? Be where you are. Be where you are. You don't have to change a thing. What you have to start saying is, okay, God, what are you trying to show me right now with what I'm in right now? This is where you've got me. I, I may not like it. I may think that there's another answer out there. If I had a different house, if I had a different spouse, if I had different kids, if I had a different job, then I'd be happy. Wrong. That's not how you learn contentment. That's how you learn that changing the environment doesn't change you. Here's how you learn contentment. You be where you are and you let God change your heart from the inside and establish a principle of peace no matter what storm you're going through. So what does Paul say in, in verse 11 again? He says, I, I learned in whatever, what? Circle the word situation. Because the word whatever is so, it's so important. The word, maybe you should circle whatever. Whatever is the important word here. Whatever situation you're in, you can learn in that situation to be content. Okay, so a couple of years ago, when the government started handing out free money for us to stay at home because of the global pandemic, right? People had a lot of money. And I know people had a lot of money because our church's giving went way up not down. And so people were also online and they weren't going out and they weren't, you know, spending money on restaurants or movies or entertainment. So they had a lot more savings and, and all the savings has suddenly dried up. And, and we're we've been talking about this all, all series long. Inflation, the high cost and, and the money is gone and the free stuff is gone. And, and now we're kind of paying the piper here in the process. And so here's the point though, is that did you learn anything when there was plenty? Well, now you're in the place where there's not as much. Can I tell you, you can learn now as well. You can learn here. That's what Paul says. He says in verse 12, this is not on the screen, but he says in verse 12, I know how to be brought low. Do you, do you know how to be brought low? Do you know how to let God bring you through the lean seasons of life? I fear for our young people because they're constantly told that they have no chance at getting ahead. They're, they're constantly told it. And by the way, young people, it's the politicians who tell you this. They tell you this all the time. You're never going to have the standard of living your parents have. Oh, and by the way, it's actually your parents' fault. That's the message that our young people get from our politicians. Yes? Yeah, that's the message. Your parents made the world bad for you financially. Can I tell you, all the millennials and Gen Zers and Gen Yers and Gen Elemental Peers, whatever you guys are, I don't know who you are. Can I tell everybody younger than me, can I tell you that when I was your age, when I was 20 years old, they said the exact same thing to my generation. They called us Gen X. You want to talk about a terrible moniker, There's, that's pretty bad. Like we, weren't, we weren't even Gen J. <laughs> we were Gen X. And I remember they would say, oh, we're calling you Gen X because you have no hope. And they used to say this to us all the time. They used to say, you will never arrive to the level of lifestyle your parents. You're going to be the first generation in American history that doesn't get to where your parents are. That's exactly what they said to us. Any Gen Xers in the house remember when they said that to us? Anybody? So, okay, I'm not alone. There's at least one person that's honest here. And that, that's what they said. That's what they said. Um, they lied to us. If you stay patient and work hard and save and give and do the things we're talking about, do life God's way, eventually you get to a better place. Don't listen to the politicians lying to you to cause division between you and mom and dad or you and grandma, this generational division that they're causing. You will do good if you settle down, put your, put your head down, trust God, put your hands to work, and, and diligently over the long haul, be honorable, upstanding, and faithful. And God will bless it. Do you know why? Because that's the things, those are the things that God blesses. Those are the things that God blesses. He blesses hard work. Here's what he doesn't bless. Complaining. He doesn't bless blaming. He doesn't bless division. 
God blesses hard work and diligence. God blesses giving. God blesses contentment. And so what you got to do when you're young and broke, can I tell you, listen to me, every young and broke person, you're supposed to be young and broke. Can I get a good amen right there? When you're young, you're supposed to be broke. That's why when you get married and you're broke, that's why God has organized your bodily functions to be highly hormonal in those, in those, er- in those years of your life. You got a powerful sex drive. That's because God wants you to get married and produce babies and be broke so that you can learn how to trust him. Amen. So, so if you got no money and you're young and you're horny, follow the path that God has laid out. These aren't even in my notes. I'm just riffing right here. And I probably shouldn't be, but I'm going to go with it. Eventually, those kids will settle you down. They'll cause you to work hard because their little hungry mouths will be waiting for you when you get home. And you won't flutter away your life in fruitless pursuits. You'll settle down, you'll get financially stable and even blessed, and you'll be able to leave something behind for them. This is how it's supposed to work. So relax and learn. Learn to be content with where you are. Because I'm telling you, changing where you are will not fix you. Write this down so I know you're getting it. It's only when we embrace where we are that we find the grace for where we are. It's only when we stop saying, if only I had, if only I could, if only I would. And just say, okay, Father, I'm here in this place. And now I'm asking you for the grace in this place. Come on, somebody say grace in this place. I need grace in this place for where I am to face it right here, right now. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians. He said um, that when he was having this thorn in the flesh and he was begging God to take it out of him, God spoke to him and said, listen, my grace is sufficient for you. Right where you are, my grace. I'm not taking away the thorn, Paul. I'm gonna leave it right there because I am teaching you to rely on me, not you. But you you gotta embrace where you are. Instead of telling yourself that you need the change on the outside to fix what's on the inside. By the way, Paul, contextual, cool contextual insight here about Philippians chapter 4. The book of Philippians is written to a church in ancient Philippi. I already said that. The last time Paul was in ancient Philippi, do you know what happened? Paul was going to pray. He and his his partner in ministry, Silas, they were going to pray. And that's all they were doing. They were going to pray. And and there was this demon-possessed girl that was following them. And she was shouting all these things at them. And so Paul finally gets upset and has enough of the demon. And he rebukes the demon and casts the demon out. But it turns out that that little girl was like a sorcery agent for some people who made money on her fortune-telling. And so immediately it says those people saw that their their money was gone. Notice how it was money. Their, their, Their profit was gone. They turned on Paul, they arrested him, they threw them in prison. And Paul and Silas are in prison. This is a very famous Sunday school story. They're in prison, and they're in, the Bible says their feet are in the stocks, and they don't complain, and they don't rail against everybody and all the things that have happened. They find grace in that place, and they start to praise God. They start to sing hymns. And the scripture says in Acts chapter 16 that as they start singing, there's a earthquake and the earthquake breaks down all the prison walls and everyone in the prison is suddenly set free powerful moment. i don't know about you but i would have loved to have been there to see this amazing like jailbreak jesus style amen somebody that would be amazing right and they get out, and then the, the, the jailer wants to kill himself, and, and Paul says, don't do that, we're here. He tells him about Jesus, the jailer gets saved. There's a church planted in Philippi through this earthquake, jailbreak, Jesus style. That's the church that Paul's writing to. And he's writing them a thank you letter for sending him money to support his ministry. And he's writing back to them, and where is he writing this from? Anybody know? Prison. He's in prison again. And this time, listen to this. No miraculous prison break. No jailer gets saved, church planted, amazing testimony of God's power. Nope, this time, Paul's in prison and he's staying there. And you know what he writes to them? 
Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord, what? Always. And again, I say rejoice. Why? Because joy is never about what's on the outside. It's about what's on the inside. Learn to be content. What I'm trying to tell you is this. Learn to be content when God gives you a prison break. And learn also to be content when God does not break open the prison doors. Because there is something good for you in both seasons. The highs and the lows. You got to learn how to be even in both places. Amen, somebody? This is good preaching. I'm just letting you know. If you didn't know already, this is good preaching. Point number three. I'm content being part of a community that cares. So if you want contentment in your life, get involved in your church community. And I'm just going to tell you right now, just coming to church and facing me for 45 minutes isn't going to do it. Isn't going to do it. You've got to get into a life group. You've got to get into our men's and women's groups down here in Apollo Beach. You've got to get in contact with each other so that you know each other. Uh, we're going to get small groups started in the new year down here in Apollo Beach. But in our other locations, there's already small groups going on. And the best thing for some of you right now to do is to leave this building, not, not leave this building, leave this sanctuary, go into our lobbies and sign up for a community group, for a life group. Get into a community where people know you. And then they can care for you and help you and serve. And you can serve them and care for them. That's why Paul's writing this letter, by the way. What does he say in verse 10? He, what does he say? Look at verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord. What's the next word, everybody? Circle the word greatly because <clears throat> a little interesting tidbit, textual tidbit, tidbit about this text. That word greatly is the only place in the entire Bible where Paul uses it. Right there in verse 10 of Philippians 4. He's like, I rejoice in the Lord. Not, not kind of. I didn't, I didn't just get happy. He says, I rejoice in the Lord. Great. I was so excited when I heard that you, could, you were concerned for me. This brought joy to my life. To have someone in my life that cared for me. And you know what? You know, do you know where contentment comes from? It's just a proof positive that contentment comes from not things, but relationships. People. The New Living Translation says it like this. I love it. How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. Or the Message Translation. This is a, a paraphrased version of the Bible. I'm glad in God. Far happier than you could ever guess. Happy that you are again showing such strong concern for me. Where was Paul's joy found? My friends, it wasn't in this kind of highly individualized version of Christianity where you listen to your favorite podcast preacher and Hillsong or Bethel worship album and do Christianity on your own alone. No. Contentment and joy are found when you get out of your comfort zone. You get to know some people in your local church. You love those people. Those people love you. You become bonded to them, not just in community, but in the bond of peace through the Holy Spirit. And God fuses you together through his power and nothing separates you from people who genuinely care about you. Can I tell you, it's one of the best blessings you could have in life. It's to have a community of church people who love you and care for you. This, this, this notion, by the way, and I see it, and I've seen it so many years, decades, I have seen it. People get hurt in a church, and then they leave. And I just say, oh, that church hurt me. And then they leave, and, they, and they, this is what they do. They do the I'm not content thing. So they say, surely if I find another church, I'll be happy. So they, they, they jump out of that church, and say, oh, they hurt me. And they go over here to this church. Oh, look at this church. No one's going to hurt me here. <laughs> yes, they are. Do you know why? Because you just traded one group of sinners saved by grace for another group of sinners saved by grace. Amen. They're going to hurt you. And you know what happens to these people? And I've seen it. I've seen it a thousand times. Slowly and inevitably, they deteriorate spiritually because they've never done the hard work of growing up. You know when you grow up is when you stop letting everything affect you. Letting every person offend you. Letting every slight 
bring unending bitterness into your heart. My friends, some of you today at all of our locations, you gotta drop the backpack of bitterness off of your back. I, I mean, at some point, you gotta remember that you, you are a sinner who offended God and he loves you anyway. And then he says this, forgive one another as the Lord Jesus, what? Forgave you. Ooh, that's hurtful right there, pastor. Now you're really meddling with my issues. But it's good preaching. Because this is how you get into a community. You gotta learn to grow with them. And yeah, sometimes you're gonna get hurt. And sometimes people are gonna do that. And sometimes the church is gonna make a decision that you're not cool. Okay, I get it. We all have preferences. But can you get over those little minute preferences to maintain the bond of peace through the Holy Spirit? Because the most important movement on the planet is not the government, is not some sports team, is not some corporation. The most important movement on the planet is the church of Jesus Christ. And if you keep cutting off, and if you keep cutting off and, and, and getting hurt and getting broken and getting all, I gotta bend down a shape. You're the one who will never find peace. And I've been hurt by the church. I've been hurt. I've been insulted. I've been talked about. I've had people Facebook message, all that kind of, oh man, I've seen it. At some point, you just get thick skin. You start ignoring that. And then you pay attention to the people who are genuine. Because in every church, there's some genuine people. Get with these people. They're fantastic. They're going to be the best people you will ever meet. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Now, am I preaching something that's in the Word? Yes, I am. Because look what Paul says again in verse 15. Look what he says to the Philippians. He says, you Philippians yourselves, you know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, in other words, when I first came to your area and started preaching the gospel in this area where your city is, look at the next two words. Say the next two words, everybody, out loud. What's the next two words? No church. No church. When I came to your area and started preaching the gospel, no church entered into partnership with me. What does that mean? It means no church supported me financially, except you. And no, notice the last two words. Circle them for me, if you would, in your notes. You only. As if Paul is saying, look, Philippians, I, I looked for support from other churches, and they said, nope. Mind you, these were churches that Paul started these are churches that Paul worked on the side to make sure that they would get started, they would get planted. He took no money from them. He brought the gospel to them. And when he needed them financially, they closed their hands and said, we're not helping. What am I trying to tell you? I'm trying to tell you that it's not very uncommon to have only a few good friends in the church. This was Paul's experience. This was, this was Paul's experience. I have a, and, I, and it's my experience. I've had a lot of Christian friends, but I've got about three really good, close, lifelong, Jesus-loving friends. Is, is anybody getting this? Because this is the experience of Paul, and it will be the experience of you. But this is where contentment comes from. Um, you can't be friends with everybody. You can't be friends with that. Even the, the book of Proverbs says that a man of many companions will come to ruin. But there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. What is it saying? Yes, Jesus is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. Yes, that's true. That's the interpretation. But it's also an interpretation practically of there's only a few people that you can be really tight with. Jesus had the thousands, he had the 120, he had the 12, and inside the 12, he had three, Peter, James, and John. I got three good friends that I rely on and they bring me contentment. He says in verse 16, even in Thessalonica, you sent me, you sent me gifts not once, but again and again and again. Can I tell you this? I want you to write this down because this is important. A few good relations, a few great relationships are worth more than great riches every day. A few, a few great relationships are worth way more than great riches every day. I, I love this next proverb. This one cracks me up. A bowl of vegetables with someone you love is better than steak with someone you hate. 
That's Proverbs 15, 17, New Living Translation. I love it. Jesus tells the story about a rich man in Luke chapter 12. It says that this rich man had this farm. And the farm, just one season, the rains were right. The fertilizer was right. The, the ground was perfect. Everything went amazing. And his crop, his crop was was beyond anything he expected. It produced plentifully, Jesus says in Luke 12. And then what it says this is, he started to think about more. He didn't think about others, he thought about himself. Look what it says in verse 17. And he thought to who? To himself, underline himself. Now notice all the ways this guy talks. All these pronouns are self-centered pronouns. He thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build bigger ones and I will store all my grain and my goods and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. He's not just thinking to himself. Now he's talking to himself. I'll say to myself, my, I, my, me, I, oh, ah. And he's like, I'll just have this big, huge honking barn with all this food, and I'll never have another word. I've won the lottery, and everything's going to be great. Now, what does it say? Verse 20, the very next phrase. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared for yourself, who, whose will they be? In other words, but God's lesson here is, is this. We can get so caught up in having more, we forget to build relationships with people. We can get so caught up in chasing the higher paycheck, the bigger house, the better stuff, whatever it is, that we forget that those things can isolate us as much as they can tantalize us. And they can make us feel so secure in ourselves that we never forge meaningful relationships with anybody else. And before you know it, we're living alone and, and, and completely cut off from everybody else because we served things rather than serving the things that matter to God. Community and relationships. Then he says this. So is the one, verse 21, who lays up treasure for what? For himself, but is not rich toward God. This is why you give. This is why you tithe. This is why you bless others. And the tithe, the 10%, we talked about that last week and the week before. Do you know what that is? I call that the training wheels of giving. That's just getting your hand to open up. That's what it is. It's just to start teaching you how to take it out and give it away. And by the way, again, you don't give the tithe, you bring the tithe. But do you know why you also bring the tithe? Because there's a principle in scripture that comes from Luke chapter 12. At the end of this parable that Jesus talks about the rich man, he says in verse 33, sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Look at verse 34. For where your treasure, what, is, there your heart, what, will be also. Or there will your heart be also. Look, look what he says. Wherever you put your treasure, so if you put your treasure here, your heart, which might be over here, is going to go over here and say, oh, there's my treasure. That's where my heart is. So, see, this is, this is the treasure principle. I want you to write it down. Your heart follows your treasure. What you care about in life follows where you put your money. Um, everybody knows this instinctively because the moment that you buy a stock, you suddenly care about that company. You didn't give a rip about that company before you bought the stock. Now, you can't, now you're financially invested. Now you worry. Do they have a great CEO? Do they know what they're doing? Is this a bust? I don't know if I invested in the right company. I don't know if they're doing it. Now you care because your finances went there. If you buy a house, and maybe you buy a house that's way too much for you, and, and before you know it, you're swamped, and you're just your whole life is in that house because you put your money all in that house, and you have no time for anybody else because you have to make sure that you make the payment on that house. Your heart has followed your treasure. This is why you tithe and give to the local church because your heart, if you want to develop a heart for the house, put your money in the house and watch your heart follow it and you start caring about it. And by the way, watch God develop in you a heart for your community because the only way a community hears about the gospel ultimately is through a local church. Anybody notice there's no more Billy Graham crusades anywhere? 
There's no more big, huge, stadium-packed crusades, really, in America. Do you know how God is reaching America right now? Through the local church. When you give to it, when you tithe, when you say, I'm supporting you, you're supporting gospel preaching in that church. And God's heart and your heart align. Point number four, and finally, I'm content when I know I can never outgive God. And this is what Paul found. This is, this is what Paul learned. And this is what you can learn, what I've learned. The greatest giver ever is God. And you'll never outgive him because he never runs out. What does Paul say to the Philippians? He's talking about all that they gave. He, they provided for him. They sent him support, not once but twice. And then it says this in verse 19. He says, and because you did this, and, and because, that's what that word and means in verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. In other words, Philippians, this is a promise for you because you're givers. Here's the promise. You've gave, you gave to the mission of Jesus. And God will give to you. He's going to pour out, according to his riches, more than you can possibly know. Because you can't outgive him. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, 37, he said, Judge not, you will not be judged. Condemn not, you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. And then verse 38, give and what? And it shall what? So, so, so give and it shall be given to you. Some, some of us are wondering, where's the blessing of God in my life? Well, you gotta open up the spigot. And the spigot is closed off because you're not a giver. You haven't learned to let go of the things that God has given you. You haven't learned to be content and stop comparing yourself against everybody else. You haven't learned to ignore the commercials on television or on social media. You haven't learned to receive the grace for where you are so that you can be at peace where you are. And you haven't learned the value of community yet because your heart is drawn by all these other things in life that you think are gonna make you happy. No, 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 my friend. Contentment is being the same on the inside no matter what's on the outside. And you learn it by giving, by sharing your life with others, by opening up the spigot of of your finances, to bless others and watch God pour it in your life. It says it's gonna be pressed down, shaken together, running over, put into your lap, for with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. You can't outgive God. The greatest verse in all the Bible, and everybody probably knows it, John 3, 16. What's the verb in the verse? For God so loved the world, he what? He gave his only begotten son. You ever think about the most important verse in the Bible? God's the subject and giving is the verb. Jesus is the object and you're the direct object. You're the one who received. God gave Jesus because he loved you. And that's where life really begins.